This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Damon Galgut, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you. Pleased to be here. We are in person. Now, that's pretty special, isn't it? Well, um, yeah, these days, unusual. Very unusual. Now, I've got a little story to tell you. Um, most of the listeners know this, that I spend three months, three or four months a year in San Francisco. And my friends over there belong to a book club. And uh, the January book club, while I was there, was The Promise. Oh, it's gratifying to know. Yeah, so I, um, I read it on the plane on the way over. Not the most ideal reading circumstances, but, you know, there's no, a place for every book. It really, um, it kind of resonated with me because I kind of, my mum died recently and she was a matriarch and uh, there was a lot in it that I found particularly truthful in terms of relationships and families. Um, but let me introduce you for those people out there that might not know who you are. Damon is a South African novelist who lives and works in Cape Town. He published his first novel at just 17 years of age and has gone on to publish nine novels. His novels, The Good Doctor and The Strange Room, were both nominated for the Booker Prize. He then won the 2021 Booker Prize with his remarkable novel, The Promise, set over four decades in post-apartheid South Africa. It tells the story of one family and four funerals, painting a story of a family in crisis against the backdrop of a country in political upheaval. Damon is in Sydney for the Sydney Writers' Festival and we are thrilled, as I said, to have him here in person. Okay, there's a lot to talk about, but firstly, congratulations on the Booker Prize win. I mean, what an accolade. Thank you. Yeah, and shortlisted several times as well. Yeah, I'm not quite sure how that happened, but um, it's hard to argue with. Yeah, no, you're a beautiful writer, actually. Um I think, too, when I read Booker Prize winners, it's a combination of craft and story. Well, um, yeah, I'd like to think so. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. Obviously, I wasn't present in the judges' room when they made their decision, so I don't know what they were weighing up. Yeah. All right. Tell me, um, firstly, I want to talk about your career, and then I want to talk about the book. Tell me how you came to writing. Was it, you know, as a small child, um, did you grow up in Cape Town? Did you think that I'm going to be a writer? I grew up in Pretoria, which, um, you know, is South Africa's capital city up north. And I wanted to be a writer from a very early age. I mean, I trace it back to a period of serious illness as a kid. I had lymphoma when I was oh, six no, years sorry. old. Yeah. And um, I went through five years of chemotherapy. Oh, Strange to grueling. think of. Now. It was, um, but, you know, so much time's passed that it almost feels as if it happened to somebody else. But in that time, you know, spending a lot of uh, hours in sick rooms and in hospitals, um, I had an endless 
series of relatives coming to read to me. Oh, wow. And, How beautiful. Well, it was. And um, I think my love of books and stories goes back to that time. Mm. Um, and, you know, the comfort and security that they provided were also a very good motivation to want to make stories myself. So I started writing from a very early age. I mean, not very well, it has to be said. Yeah. Um, and practice, the, it's all practice. Well, indeed. You know, if you do the same thing over and over, inevitably you get better at it. So yeah, um, yeah. I've done very little else with as much dedication. So I, I would hope I've got a little better than I used to be. Mm. Did you have a career outside of writing? Nothing that uh, you would necessarily call a career, but I've had to do other things to get by, um, like most writers. Um, mm. You know, uh, you, you cannot really depend on writing and especially not in South Africa um, as a viable mm. ongoing occupation. So um, I've done a great many things. I've, uh, well, I, I did study drama and I taught at the drama school at the mm -hmm. University of Cape Town for quite a few years. But in amongst all that, I've done more eccentric activities. I've been a nude model for life drawing classes. Mm -hmm. I've worked in an antique shop. I've worked as a waiter, mm. um, which are kind of you know, the raw material of life and probably a necessary... I was about to say that. It's all observation, isn't it? Well, sure. I mean, there would be something a little cut off and disembodied about, you know, being a writer from the get-go and not ever living in the real world. Although, mm. you know, um, there is the sense that the real world is always just out of reach. Mm. Well, and also, what is the real world, really? Yeah. Uh, particularly in a place like South Africa, and I want to talk to you about that. Okay, so when did you write your... Well, I guess, when was your first book published and how did that come about? When I was in high school, I was sort of obsessively writing um, and trying to write novels, actually. So my first book, which was called The Sinless Season, came out when I was 18 years old. You got it published when you were 18. Yeah, but I'd already written two, I mean, extremely bad books before that, um, which I'd had no luck with. And I kind of expected... At 18, you had no luck with it. Well, you know, I, I wrote the novels, so... I um, I sort of thought, well, you know, they they should be published. That's what automatically happens. But of course, it's not automatic. But in the case of that first book, I showed it to um, a teacher I was close to at high school, in mm -hmm. high school. And she um, took it on herself to send it to a local publisher who liked it well enough to pick it up. So, yeah, I, I got an early start. But I, I have to say it's not a book I feel especially proud of now. I think it would probably have served me better if I'd kicked off with my second book. But um, And how old were you when your second book came out? I think I was 25. Right. It took me a few years to get that right. And I think um, if I recall correctly, I wrote a couple of failed novels in the interim, which yeah. is also part of paying one's dues, I think. Hmm. Um, and but, part of learning. Well, sure. I mean, you know, rejection is far more consistent in the publishing game than being accepted. So, yeah, you do you do have to learn how to deal with both rejection and acceptance. Which I spoke to an author yesterday who told me she got 98 rejections. It's entirely believable. Yeah. yeah. But I don't, I mean, are there 98 publishers? Are there 90? <laughs> I don't know how many, were there multiple people in each publishing house rejecting her? I don't know. I thought it was painful enough, so I didn't ask her. <laughs> yeah, it, it does sound painful, but, you know, I I could probably, uh, you know, equal her tally if I started adding them all up. Right. <laughs> probably best not to. Let's talk about The Promise, because 
I had very, very strong feelings, really mainly about the family and what happened to each character. And, you know, each one had a dismal ending, I guess, right? But my friends at the book club, they, it was the place that had an impact on them. One of my friends was particularly concerned with the fact that you didn't like the country that you lived in. Right. Do you think? No, I mean, do I, you think that's accurate? South Africa um, is a very complicated place, to state the obvious, and I spent a lot of my growing up years hating it. Yeah. Um, and I think for very sound reasons, actually, mm. Mm. Um, especially back in those days, Pretoria was an extremely harsh place, full of very harsh people, and. I thought of myself, I still do, as a, as a sensitive person. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a brutal sort of place. I mean, it's softened a great deal, it has to be said. It's not the case any longer that I hate South Africa, but I do think ambivalence is a large part of the South African mm. character, you know. Mm. Um, How much do you think that the our place, our country, how much do you think that that, molds us and like you're talking about the country having an impact on the people and making them abrasive or, or, or whatever it was a language you just used. Is that because of the way the country thinks, do you think? I would guess, yeah. I mean, we yeah. grew up under a very extreme yeah. political system. It's harsh. Well, it was one that necessitated a large amount of indifference towards your fellow citizens, basically. Mm. Mm. And there was a lot of active mm. violence and brutality in, as part of that system, which you had to accommodate in yourself in some way, justify to yourself or, or reject. But, but yeah, it, it made for a lot of um, soul stirring mm. um, and a lot of pain, obviously, uh, for the people at the receiving end of that system. But for those who were wittingly or unwittingly accomplices or participants, which white people Mm. effectively all were, it involved, yeah, a lot of compromises within your own soul. Not, not good and for anyone. And do you think all white people were? I mean, is it that you're in a country and, I mean, you know, often I have to think about the separation between government and people. Is it what everybody wanted? No, I mean, that would be too sweeping a generalisation. And, of course, there are, there were, a fair number of white South Africans who stepped over the line and got involved with the ANC and some of whom, mm. you know, went, went to jail for their convictions. Mm. So, no, certainly not. And, mm. and I, from quite an early age, not because I'm any kind of moral example, um, but because I think anyone with half a brain would react that way. From an early age, I was aware that the system that was being taught to us as fair and natural was neither fair nor natural. Mm. So, yeah, um, a very, very complicated place. And, mm. um, Remains so, mm. you know. Look, I, I, I'm asking you that too, and I'm thinking, you know, about Australia as well, because it has a similar history. Mm. But then it's not the life that I want to live. I mean, I don't want to be complicit in that, complicit in the racism, complicit in the exclusion, but it's very hard to do as a citizen, isn't it? Well, in South Africa, it would have been illegal 
basically, to take any kind of stand. I mean, even to have black friends or to go into an area that had been, Mm. you know, set aside for black people was breaking the law. Mm. So effectively, to open your eyes, to actually start seeing what was around you, you would have to be confronting the might of the state, Mm. um, which is not something most people are willing to do. Mm. Um, And especially if your position is comfortable and privileged, you really, really have to have very, very strong convictions Mm. to step over the line. But some people did. Mm -hmm. You know, geographically, both countries are quite beautiful, you know, South Africa and Australia. But what's happening in those countries isn't always beautiful, is it? No, that's true. Uh, I mean, South Africa, the South African landscape is is truly one of the most Mm. dramatically beautiful that I've encountered and I've traveled Mm. a fair amount. But it's absolutely true that the history that plays out against that backdrop is Mm. often extremely ugly. Mm. So the promise I felt was was beautiful and ugly. I felt that the the family unit was um, was so destructive. (laughs) Talk to me about the idea. Where did it come from? And the premise of of the book. Where did that come from? Well, you know, it is a book that sort of accumulated i mean most novels do they don't mm. arrive as a block mm. they mm. they build up um, but the very very first germ of the idea came to me in a discussion with a friend of mine who happens to be the last surviving member of his family and he was uh-huh. entertaining me counterintuitively mm. by telling me a whole bunch of stories about the family funerals he'd been to he's a very mm. funny guy Um, And he has a very sharp eye for human behavior. So, you know, his attention was not on the person who died in each case, but on the antics of the living people who were attending the funeral. Funerals being like marriages, one of those occasions that bring families together. Or not. Or not, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But it tends to be, you know, an occasion when people congregate. Yes. So, you know, the, the, the first attraction to the idea was the notion that I could structure the book in this unusual way around these four funerals. Um, and what was most appealing what w- was actually what was left out. So mm. you'd be dealing only with the funeral and what happened in those few days. And then, you know, the next chapter or sequence in the book would be set almost 10 years later, and a great deal would have changed in the family and in the lives of the people described. So in a certain sense, that throws it back onto the reader to fill in, you know, the gap in time Mm. and imagine what might or might not have happened. And And that's kind of pleasing to me. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. 
just by nature, I'm an optimistic person, right? And so when I'm reading, I'm always looking for something that I want to like or a person that I want to like. If only they do this, if only. But, you know, that was very hard to find a character that you actually liked. I plead plead guilty to that charge. Um, You know, it's not a principle of mine that you have to like characters in in a book. Um, Couldn't we've just had one? Yeah, it's a fair it's a fair observation. But you know, this book more than anything emerged um, from my growing up years in Pretoria. Yeah, and there were not a lot of people I liked back then. Mm. And in a certain sense, I guess the book is an act of revenge on my mm. own past. Mm. Um, maybe to a reader from elsewhere, from here, mm. um, it feels exaggerated, a little bit grotesque. Mm. Mm. But I cannot tell you the number of people who grew up in Pretoria at that time, who've come to me to say, that's how it was. I know those people. And that's sort of how I feel about it. I got a sense that every character was a political view in a way. Well, that's probably true for South Africa. We're a very politically engaged country. Everyone has an opinion and a position that they're defending and so on. Um, So, you know, while while that might feel to you um, like a literary device, to me, it just feels like real life. Mm, yeah, maybe. I mean, I, was there anybody that that had a good end? No. Good ending? No, I don't think so. Well, you know, once I decided to do these four funerals and to build the book around that, it sort of occurred to me that... Everyone has to die. Well, everyone <laughs> definitely has to die, but nobody dies of old age, right, in the book. No. So if you're not going to die of old age, it struck me that, well, you're you're either going to die of illness mm. or you're going to die from an accident or somebody's going to kill you or you're going to kill yourself. Those are the options. So I thought, well, let me let me cover the range of possibilities. So, yeah, mm. they're all violent deaths, but, you know, old age is the only unviolent way to exit the world, it seems mm. to me. Mm-hmm. It can still seem quite violent, I think, even dying, even dying of old age. But I want to talk to you about family. I felt that you had a really good grasp of every person's role in a family. Did you draw that from your own experience or was it what you had observed? Well, both. Um, I mean, I come from a family that's highly dysfunctional hmm. Um <laughs> But it's far from being the only example of dysfunctionality. Mm. Um, I know a lot of dysfunctional families. A lot of my friends grew up with a similar sort of background. Um, And just on a literary level, you know, dysfunctional families are far more interesting than harmonious ones. You know, as Tolstoy Mm. said, all happy families are alike. Mm. Um, But this family clearly is unhappy in its own very distinctive way. Mm. And conflict holds attention. Mm. Mm. You know, ha- harmony doesn't. No, no, exactly. But I mean, it was. I thought it was particularly brutal. I mean, I agree with you. You know, I mean, I come from a big family, and it was harmonious for a long time, and then the matriarch left, and and you know, we're picking up the pieces. So things can change. From, of course, yeah, yeah. From har- very often, it's an individual that holds a sense mm. of structure together, and when they go, the structure goes too. Mm. Mm. And I felt that there was there was that here because the matriarch had died. Yeah, I like the idea of the thread of Salome's story and the promise, I guess. And again, I was just wishing that somebody would give her that house, you know. Talk to me about that because I felt that that thread was your view on South Africa. 
Well, sure. It's it's definitely a window uh, yeah. into my feelings about the country. Mm. That actually came from a separate conversation with a different friend who was who was telling me a f- well, not an anecdote, but but telling me something that really really had bothered him for a very long time. Um, and the scenario was pretty much the one that I've described. That is, his mother, when she died, long long time ago, had made the family promise that they would give, you know, the scrappy piece of land with a really broken down house on it to the black lady who'd looked after her through her last illness. And the family agreed, they promised, and then they didn't follow through. Now, that's a very South African Mm. story, an ugly, harsh, but true South African story. And although it arrived after the initial idea for the book, it very quickly was apparent to me that that was a thread I could run right through mm. the book. So if, if in fact she had got her house early on, there wouldn't be a, a book to write. So no, yeah, no. from a literary point of view, it had no, to be of extended. Course. Of course. But I think in my reading of it too, is that money makes people crazy. Inheritances make people crazy. That seems to be true. And I've, um, it, I came to a realisation a few years ago that, that pe- people feud over inheritances, even inheritances that are not that substantial exactly because it represents something else and in my opinion it represents your position in the family so i think people take it very very personally because they see it as some kind of sign of their standing their Mm. their rank in the hierarchy somehow Mm. you know obviously sometimes that's actually just money yeah yeah and and i think there's a level of greed too i think that there's there's that but you might be right too. And also I think sometimes there's a level of possession that you want those. It's part of dealing with grief is having something tangible, I guess. Right. You know, yeah, that makes to. sense. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Um, you know, th- there's this huge dispute at the heart of my book about a piece of land and a house that are actually not worth anything, no. which I, for me anyway adds a level of poignancy to it. Mm. I mean, if it was a really valuable piece of property, you could mm. sort of understand the motive. Well, you could forgive them all, but it wasn't that, you know? No, people, no. and especially I think the white South Africans depicted here, will fight over what they have because they see no reason to give it up, even if it doesn't have any value. And, mm. and that's, again, I think a very South African tale. Mm. Mm-hmm. So what happens to your writing after you win the Booker Prize? Well, it remains to be seen. <laughs> I haven't had a second to do any piece of writing since right. then. So, you know, it's it's a bit of an untested area. Um, but I don't think it's going to be any easier or more difficult than it ever was before. It was, you don't? It, mm, well, I'm, I may prove myself wrong, but I've always found writing enormously difficult, probably the most difficult thing in the world. So I don't think winning the book is going to make it any easier. Um, I always wonder why you writers keep going. You know, it's so hard. Most writers that I speak to tell me the same thing, that it never gets any easier. You know, I mean, I've I've interviewed writers that are on their 20th book and they say even starting that is as hard as the first. And then you finally get published and then everybody has an opinion. I mean, surely there's got to be an easier occupation. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's definitely got to be easy <laughs> occupations. Um, but yeah, you, you've, you've picked on something that, you know, is, is a sort of secondary part of the experience, but, you know, um, a very difficult one, which is that once the book is out there, everybody gets to say whatever they think about it and you. And it's just part of the deal that you have to take it, mm. you know. And uh, can you, are you thick-skinned in that area? I've learned to be. Um, yeah. I mean, I remember weeping bitterly in my younger years of a bad review. Now it's just, uh, well, 
Mm. Move on to the next. Mm. Don't look at it. Yeah. Um, how has the book changed your life? Uh, you know, not even in terms of reading. Like, you know, I mean, you've been working as a writer full time for some time now. Does it change things for you in terms of not writing your next book, but the way you live your life? Well, you know, the biggest struggle for writers most of the time is to get even a tiny bit of attention for, you know, yourself or your work. Um, and the booker sort of presents the opposite problem in a way. You have to, you have to kind of fend off attention. Um, so I've been doing an enormous amount of talking, which is not the activity that comes most naturally to me, um, but I've had to learn to adapt. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've basically accepted that this year is going to be given over to travel and talk um, and that things will quieten down in due course. So mm. probably it'll be a little easier to see how things have altered once mm. I reach that moment, but I uh, certainly haven't yet. No, not yet. It's only recent. When was it announced? November. November. Yeah, yeah. Half, half a year already. Yeah, yeah. What does your um, working day look like when you're at home working, when you're writing? It kind of depends on which stage of the process I'm in. I mean, mm-hmm. the first draft for me is really a hellish experience. I, mm-hmm. I, it's fair to say that I, I hate every moment of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because I don't really know where I'm going or what I'm doing. Uh, I have an urge or an impulse to give a shape to what is really um, just a, a maybe an image or a sense of a character or a group of characters in a situation. But beyond that, I don't really even know why the idea is attractive. And in a sense, you go through the process of writing the book in order to find out why you're writing the book. So Mm -hmm. the last stages of a book um, are far more pleasurable and, you know, I I get more and more obsessed with it as I go along. But the early stages, I have to sort of drive myself to it. So do, do you have the story in your head before you approach the writing or is it you sit down and, and you do that simultaneously? Yeah, I, I, I have a few fragments maybe, mm. um, shadows, mm. um, which you're trying to give body to. The first draft hopefully will map it out. Once, once you've got the map and you can traverse the same route over and over, things become far more mm. manageable. Mm. I mean, it's a process essentially that moves from unconsciousness to Mm. consciousness or Mm. as much consciousness as you can muster um, so that, you know, the really pleasurable part comes in the really, you know, the last draft where you're pulling everything together and everything makes sense and you're arranging everything around a theme which is hopefully clearer to you by then. So there is a deep pleasure involved when you reach that part, but beginning that process is very daunting. Mm -hmm. Do you labour on things like sentences or phrases? Or I, I'm asking that question because there's an Australian writer called Tim Winton, beautiful writer, and I have, you know, obviously read, um, I think, all, everything he's written. But I finally met him a couple of years ago and recorded a podcast. And I had this image in my head that he just writes these beautiful sentences. They just come out of him, right? And when he started telling me, you know, how he labours over one sentence. In a way, I didn't want to hear it because as a reader, <laughs> just give me the end result, right? Just give me the story and give me the style. Well, of course, that's the sense you want to arrive at, that it was Don't effortless you? and, Don't you know, but it hardly ever emerges that way. I mean, I, I do know Tim a bit. In fact, we... Oh, you know Tim Winton? Yeah, we've, we've met at a couple of festivals and we actually had a correspondence going for a while, um, mm. old-fashioned literary sort of correspondence. I like him very much and I like his work very much. But like 
like him, um, you know, it's a very, very long, discordant struggle to produce the music, but the music matters. Um, mm. And incidentally, that music doesn't matter to all writers. You know, there are writers you read for their vision, say, um, you know, the conviction of their ideas, but you wouldn't necessarily turn to them for their style. Mm. Um, the music of the language is, I guess, the top priority for people to whom style matters. And yeah, I mean, Tim Winton, I think, is a great stylist. Mm. Yeah. So are you. Well, thanks. I mean, I do work at it hard, so, mm. but no, it doesn't arrive that way. Sometimes, you know, you, you have a, a blessed day's work and it all just pours out in a way that actually you hardly have to alter, but that's unusual. Mm. And do you try and put in, you know, like four hours a day, five hours a day? I mean, do you, how do you approach writing? Quite honestly, in the early stages, um, I'd, I'd take almost any excuse to leave my desk. So, uh, you know, it, it may not be, there may be days where you don't work at all. There may be days where suddenly you're, you hit a groove and then um, things run more smoothly. Towards the end of the process, um, it's hard to pull me away from the desk. I mean, once, once you really are obsessive and you know where you're going. So um, in the latter part of the process, I'd say I sometimes can sit there for 10 hours at a stretch. But, yeah, wow. but that's not how you start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. And every book that you start writing, is it the book that you finish and the book you get published? Or do you do a bit of start and stop? Oh, no. You... Um, in your head, you have this ideal perfect book, right? So it's never that book that you end up with. You you end up with a compromised version of it. But you get as close to it as you possibly can, whatever that means. Do you um, think it's always compromised? Well, it's never going to be perfect, right? And what well, you it's have, perfect for the reader. Well, you know, um, if you had to reread the book over and over, there might be things that start to bother you. Um, I do obviously try to bring it as close to the abstract idea I have in my head as possible. Mm. But, you know, there's always a gap between an abstraction and a reality, and the reality mm. is what lands up in people's hands. Mm. Well, I tell you what, I mean, I, I enjoyed it very much. I felt really privileged to, to be, you know, to be invited to this book club and talk about it in the US, in San Francisco. Um, and then, you know, I've only been back a few weeks and here you are. <laughs> uh, well, it's a privilege for me to be here in Sydney. It's such a pleasure. Mm, mm. So anyway, I'll let you go because I know you've got an event tonight. Um, Damon, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you. Thanks for the chance to speak a bit. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called Borrowbox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.